Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Bud Light. Bud Knight is back. Bud Light brought back Bud Knight by recreating another pivotal moment from Game of Thrones. Reciting pasta varieties can only bring back beings filled with Bud Light. Wonder if Bud Knight caught up with the wizard and the king to get some Italian food? Enjoy responsibly, 21 and up. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk, now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio is Juliet Littman. Hey, what's up? Oh my God, we've podcasted a lot together over the last eight days. Mostly about Vanderpump Rules. <laughs> exclusively. <laughs> exclusively. But Juliet is here with me. Andy couldn't make it today, but and we pushed the pot a day. Who needs them? Because I wanted to... Catch the wave of the Fosse Verdon wave. Surfing USA. So Fosse Verdon is up tonight. Uh, the first episode goes on FX. So you should check it out. And Juliet and I are going to talk a little bit about Fosse Verdon. And then the second half of the podcast is my interview with two of the people behind Fosse Verdon, Tommy Kale, who is the director of Hamilton. <gasps> what? The musical. <gasps> and Stephen Levinson, who wrote the book for Dear Evan Hansen and is 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 one of the you know, one of the main writers on Fosse Verdon, and we talked about the sort of what it took to bring the show to TV. And uh, some, I'm genuinely excited to listen to that conversation. It was actually a delightful, delightful convo. Those guys were really, really interesting. Uh, and it was it was like really fun to talk to them. They were in post, I believe, on some of the later episodes of the season. But they were nice enough to take some time out to talk to me. So we're going to talk about Fosse Verdon in a few minutes. We want to talk about Killing Eve first? Sure. Where do you put your Killing Eve fandom at? At the end of season one, like heading into season two, where you like, this is one of the best things on TV. I, I like this. Well, obviously, this comes with a lot of emotional baggage for me as a Grey's Anatomy longtime, I know, longtime and current viewer. Christina Yang in the Christina house. Christina Yang is my homegirl. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it's very. It, but like, what's amazing about her is that when I watch the show, I'm not like, wow, Christina Yang has a new job. It's like, wow, Sandra's an amazing actress. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. But of course, I do. I do bring that emotional baggage to the table. I was really excited about it. It's a. I mean, it's a great show. It also is feminist without feeling political in a cool way. Like it doesn't feel like we're making a feminist statement. It happens to be a show that is about like two women kind of um, and a particular like female kind of obsession. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Which is which is really cool with and, one another. Yeah, and feels different and organic. Yeah. And so very. I was like eagerly anticipating it, but it doesn't have the same kind of economy around it that Game of Thrones does. So in some ways sure. it's, it's easier to like just slip into the show and like watch it, enjoy it. And then Although that is on. apparently changing. Yeah, huge ratings. Huge ratings for season two. It's already been reviewed for season three and there, uh, I believe Sarah Barnett is her name, is mm-hmm. who sort of oversees AMC Networks, which is AMC and Sundance and BBC America. Great Troika there. As essentially talking about Killing Eve as one of like the planks on which this network of channels is sort of built along with Walking Dead. Isn't it amazing to think about the, tra- like how how it went from being like the Mad Men and Breaking Bad network to now being like the Killing Eve network. Yeah, yeah. It's such like a, just a different time in TV over the last like 10 years. It's pretty it wild. Is. It is. And I I couldn't help but feel like I heard that information as I watched season the first episode of season two. You know, like mm-hmm. knowing that it is so important for the continued growth and stability of a series of channels was kind of fascinating to watch because you, I did feel like a little bit like the first episode of season two did a lot of water treading. Yes, it did. But still just an incredible performance from Jodie Comer. Yeah. She is like transfixing. I have a really, I have a take that I've been waiting to share with you. Sure. I feel like her closest comp on television 
is Cosmo Kramer in her. <laughs> <laughs> which is particularly special because you don't watch Seinfeld. But her physical acting is so incredible yeah. and like it's almost like miraculous to me. It's, it's actually kind of cool to talk about it leading into Fosse Burden because yeah. she's she would be an amazing like theater actress. When she takes a swig of vodka and then pours it on herself, I just like I felt disgusted and pained the way that she surely did after she was stabbed. Yeah. And her just her physical presence is so overwhelming on the screen in a positive way that it it just is like it's like watching a true sociopath at work I guess yeah which is a huge testament to the show and to her it it does really remind me of Kramer on Seinfeld though where like when he would come into the room the way that he would physically operate would take up so much of of my attention and it's very similar with her there's a really good I'm gonna butcher this because I'm just like trying to do it off of memory rather than look it up baby but there's this really good anecdote about Rachel McAdams from Tina Fey when they were making Mean Girls and it was basically Rachel McAdams was I think Completely unknown, relatively unknown She's at the time of Mean Girls. super unknown. I remember being like, that one's 27? Wow. <laughs> but Tina Fey was saying something about, like, in the script it says something. And they did one version of a scene where Rachel McAdams, like, basically turns to the camera and, like, raises an eyebrow. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you could just feel, like, the shockwaves go through the set. Like, because that was movie acting or that was screen acting. Like, it was somebody who was just in command of gesture in a way. And I think it's acting in general. In theater, you maybe necessarily have to be a little bit more gesticulative and like projecting but on screen yeah like you can pour vodka on your stomach and if you're like really if you really have like that ability to reflect interior experiences and physical experiences with your acting like the audience can feel it yes and it was the same thing where it's just like everything Comer does it's not even calibrated it just seems like she's completely inhabited this character it's hard to tell if she takes over the scene or if the production is so well done that they've catered to her her talents in yeah. a way and which I think is another testament to why the show is good but it just it the show this episode in particular and, and maybe this is like seeing the seams a little bit more than you would like to felt very much like it was like a playground for Villanelle to kind of like literally get back on her feet after being yeah. stabbed yeah and when she pretends to be the doctor uh, in the hospital and and sort of like all of the antics she pulls while she's basically for her all her, her for her purposes like that's kind of like being caged up even more so than when she was in prison in season one yeah um, it just felt a lot like kind of getting her like kind of her rehab and like getting her back to being ready to like be crazy I was totally entertained watching this and I thought it was like really good and continued on the themes of the first season. I do think that I'm starting to get a little bit and and this is not like on Killing Eve as much as it's just kind of like a situational thing with television and, and maybe in movies too because I think I, this happens a lot in like comic book movies and superhero movies. But basically there's like a style of writing especially scene to scene that's like obstacle writing. Yeah. So it means basically like nothing about the character is revealed and nothing about the story goes particularly forward. You just give your character an obstacle or a like a puzzle that they have to solve and you basically watch a scene where she's got to get pants. So right. she's now she's going to go try and get pants and then she's got to do this and then she's just going to go do this. And I don't think you, we learned anything more about Villanelle over the course of the episode. We just watched her do some cool shit and at the end be a monster, which yeah. is what we know she is. And... Sometimes I felt like they were almost like writing into memes. Like it was just like writing into... Let's give this an internet life. Let's put this person in pajamas because it looks good. And that's actually like fine with me. Like I just, I think I sometimes respond to 
a, I have like a little bit of an allergic reaction when I'm watching a scene and I'm like, this actually has, there's no doubt that this person is going to find the object they are searching for. Mm-hmm. We are literally just wasting time. Sure, sure. Interesting. Do you feel like they do that for Sandra Oh as well? Because because right now they're in a, they're... No, I thought that the, I thought like, for instance, the confrontation at the cafe with the stranger was like a when, really when revealing... She she piece. Yeah, well, she is an addict, right. but she's pretend, like, she's still making distinctions about her social standing and like what, like her nature of her obsession and addiction is versus what like a traditional understanding of like oh you're a junkie that's an interesting note i didn't really think about that do you think that's intentional that she's supposed to, that we're now supposed to consider her like a, an addict's framework yeah yeah i think she's hmm. she's I deluded th- I, yeah, I mean, she's totally. deluded because like when her husband is like anything you tell me at the end he's basically like whatever you have to tell me like we can get through it's okay i mm-hmm. love you but if you don't tell me that's the problem and now, I suppose the implication is that it's the be- it's the beginning of her like opening up, but her explanation for her bizarre behavior is that she was compulsively spending money on windows right. for her for their flat, you That's know, which really is probably one. not what is really a problem. <laughs> um, but I thought that the way that Sandra O's character was written in this episode was completely like made sense and it it showed the incremental day-to-day evolution of a character. I think Villanelle is a little bit harder to write for. I think yeah. Villanelle is a little bit more of a, in some ways, they're two characters on two different shows and you're bringing them together. Yeah, and that that's part of why um, the episode in season one and then the finale in season one, but the one where they're in Eve's house is like so amazing because they actually come together. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think it is, it is kind of like watching two separate shows but there's still like this cat and mouse game happening between yes. between the two of them. But it is interesting. Like I'm just thinking about Sandra O oh now as an addict and like how that will change watching the show for season. Because I don't think I don't think she was positioned that way for season one. I think that she was. No, I, I think, think we've yeah. like now like seen. And I just read this book called um, The Heavens, which mm-hmm. is about a, a woman who suffers from like these like del- either madness or delusions or time travel. It's like really interesting how you want to parse it. And I think there's like an, in, there's an interesting type of conversation that opens up with a woman who could be an addict or has like some kind of like mental break that's like a descent where there's like a lot more nuance to it just in, in the language of of mental illness and madness and craziness with women than there are with men. Yeah. And I think that's really relevant for thinking about Villanelle and Eve because they're, they're two people who clearly have mental illness. Like one is a sociopath and a uh, homicidal yeah. and the other, you know, is now like cast as an addict. And that's really fascinating. Like, again, like... Uh, she's self-harming, like she's... Digging yeah, that pen, pen and into everything. her hands, yeah. And it, but it just it looks so different when you with this palette and this like this type of costuming than it did again with like Don Draper or with mm-hmm. um what's his name from Breaking Bad Walter White Walter White or, I, with, Bob, I've, or with Bob Fosse yeah. I've erased him already yeah. <laughs> yeah but it does it's just like it's fascinating and I th- I mean I don't I think Killing Eve like one of the things that's frustrating about television sometimes is that you do have to bucket shows yes. be like we talk about it in this language because of x y and z because it's about like a difficult man or prestige tv and one of the cool things about killing eve is it challenge and phoebe waller bridge's work in general is it challenges a lot of those conventions but it is such an undeniably female show oh absolutely that, like it's like to not address that stuff also feels like doing it a, a disservice but it's it's like obviously just so provocative it's exciting to have it back and i i do like that it's like um something that people just really enjoy and there is like a whole meme economy around Absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah. But, but it's also not like the I'm most not, important I, work I, of our time. I don't really think there's any use in being like, I, I think it's hard to just legislate like this should have ended after eight episodes or this was, I mean like this was a six yeah. episode show that they made an eight episode show. I agree with like there is obvious times where you can see something and you're like, oh man, this is really like obviously 
they're stretching for time a little bit or they're saving some stuff because they know that's going to have to be a two or three year run. Right. I think arguably that's like happened with Ozark. That's happened with tons of shows where you're just like, oh yeah, like this wound up being cooler than you thought. Also, there are very few things outside of England now that are one season long. Like there's just nothing is like, nothing is ever like, here's six episodes of a dynamite show. Now it's done. And even stuff that is only one season, like we're both um, enamored with Haley Atwell and in her production of Howard's End. Yeah, also starring absolutely. Matthew McFadden. Yeah. Which obviously could not be more than one season. Howard's End is one book. <laughs> yeah. But like, I, my DVR has been picking that up on the replays. Yeah. And I was just, I'm always like, oh my God, did they make second season? Yeah, is yeah. there a se- season two? Yeah. I wish. I would love to go back to that world. So it's like fun being back in that world and, and everything. And I, I, I don't even agree that there shouldn't be season two of Killing Eve. Like, keep it going. No, of course. I mean, I think that what's interesting about it is that as Villanelle has obviously become a bigger and bigger character and less an object of mystery and more... I mean, I think she's a perspective, a point of view character, obviously, in the first season. But I think something changes once you you cross the Rubicon of them meeting. Yes. And it'll be interesting to see, so what's the point now? Do you keep them apart? Are you putting things in between the two of them for them to meet again? Do you burn that and say, like, now they're they're constantly meeting? Like, I'll be very curious to see. Do they team up? Billion yeah, style? Exactly. Right. But, like, that's not... Every time she kills a kid in a hospital, yeah, like it's harder. To, it's harder for it to you be can't like, like root for her. Well, no, it's not even about rooting. It's just like realistically, like what kind of like normal life can this person right. be assimilated into? And realistically, this is a show about Eve Pilastri and actually not about Villanelle. It's about to your point. It's about Eve's obsession. Yeah, because like when she first comes across this case, it's like a side obsession to stave off a mild midlife crisis where she just sort of feels a little dead inside and yeah. she's like falling in with this like really nice guy and she has a really nice apartment and she lives in England and she does this intelligence work or whatever but then she, as she kind of like gets awakened to this she finds that it's impossible to go back to her normal everyday life she says that to Carolyn at one point in the morgue where Carolyn's just kind of like what are you going back to right. like what do you why do you want to go back to a normal life right yeah and it, it's, a gr- it's a great question Carolyn it's also just like an interesting it's interesting how the show has kind of shifted I mean, this has been my personal hobby horses, so probably no one else cares. But it was very much a show about kind of like your job in season one. Mm-hmm. And now it is definitely not. It's much more like born identity thriller. Yes. I, and and it, that it, stuff about like the, this international cabal of like, yeah. you know, Illuminati Which people. I don't really who, care about. Well, it'll be interesting because like as the show has to like expand its its like sort of aperture to take in more and more of the world to bring in more plot lines so yeah. that they can sustain it. There tends to be an, like, this is kind of what happens to Orphan Black. This is what happens to a lot of shows that are like, okay, well, if this is like a multi-season thing, it necessarily depends build out here? on more building out of the world. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Okay, Can so I let's, say one final note Yeah, about absolutely. It? it feels so Euro. It's wild. It is. It like, doesn't even feel British. It feels Euro to me in like a cool way. and Glo- like Globalist even. It's, <laughs> <laughs> call me Steve Bannon the way I call a globalist. Just kidding. Never call me Steve Bannon. But it's a it's amazing. Like it doesn't even seem like um, a British show. It's dynamite. Which is, I mean, it's, it's cool. very much that BBC that those transatlantic BBC productions like Honorable Woman, Little Drummer Girl, uh, and this obviously many of our faves. Chris feel like they're like a kind of new, a new kind of metropolitan yeah. setting that is like. Paris, London, New York. Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. But everybody everyone speaks so- English. Everywhere there's a so house. And everybody like dresses incredibly to. well. Yeah. Everywhere there's a so house. <laughs> Steve Bannon wept. <laughs> um, 
we can move on. Now. Let's talk about Fosse Burton. Okay. So uh, it's been an interesting day. I so obviously Tommy and Steven are on in the second half of this episode. I will say up front, this is my favorite show of the year. Wow. Um, this, she got an air horn? Bop, bop, no, bop, bop, I, I don't think it's like overly complicated. It doesn't have a... Um, it's my favorite show of the year because it feels absolutely full of creative energy, which is all I really need from something is just like have a point of view, have a vocabulary visually and intellectually that is like stimulating to me. The production design is sensational. Yeah, it's the like production design is sensational. The editing is top notch. The I love the short story style storytelling where it's like Oh my god, the scene where um Sam Rockwell as Bob Fosse is talking to Paul Reiser about his service in the Navy and, yeah. and it's like the circular shot and it, it you feel like you're like in like a dinner theater. It was like my favorite shot in the pilot. I loved it. Yeah, I mean, so the first episode is obviously airing uh, uh Juliet was lucky enough to see two yeah, episodes. I've watched two episodes. There was a lot of reviews today that were not very glowing, I would say. I mean, like they were, I, I think that there was, everybody admires aspects of the show, but feels like, I think generally there is a sort of aversion to the way in which it feels like it forgives Fosse or lionizes Fosse or doesn't quite tell Gwen Verdon's story with equal light as Fosse. I've only seen two episodes, but while Sam Rockwell is amazing, Michelle Williams like steals the show to me. Mm-hmm. And so... I'm a little confused about some of the critique of, like, it doesn't tell Gwen Verdon's story. I mean, I've only seen two, so I can't speak to the rest. But, yeah. like, I felt like I, I spent some time yesterday just, go, like, YouTubing Gwen Verdon, like, watched a lot of videos of her, and I didn't look of any at Bob Fosse. Like, I, I don't know. Like, that, for me, this is a revelation about who she is. I knew very little, though I, like, love musical theater. Yeah. And I don't really agree with that. I think the other thing that I find a little puzzling about the, the criticism is it's sort of, like, treating the show— as like a Bob Fosse project, it's sort of, and like everyone's like taking on the project instead of evaluating a TV show, which yeah. I which I understand. I, I get. But, I think that you can't play it both ways, right? Yeah. Like you can't build a show's uh, the level of interest in a show off of a historical figure, yeah. without having that historical figure's behaviors and actions and biography uh, interrogated. And that's that's just like the way it is. Like right. I and I think that that is completely valid and it's not personally like how I tend to view art and pop culture but I feel like I'm increasingly viewing art and pop culture in a pretty hermetic and sealed off way me too and I prefer it well I mean whether it's it's like it'll be remains to be seen I guess as to like what there's no right way or wrong way to enjoy it I think that you have to like you have to just be a good person and like whether or not you watch a television show about bad people I don't I, I don't know it doesn't necessarily it's a, such a complicated conversation to have I, I doesn't it like TV and movies about bad people about people who are complicated or people who do fucked up stuff is not necessarily an endorsement of those behaviors right and also I think it's valuable in like understanding someone like Bob Fosse's influence and and Gwen Verdon together. I mean, that's like part of the point of the show is that they were a team, but he gets, but you know, his name and not hers. I think like understanding that influence is like essential to like understanding the present as as well. And I feel like that's sort of like not accounted for. I don't know. I I really enjoy the show as well. Like it's like an immersive experience because of all the detail that that goes into it. Yeah. And I just, Flawed or not, I let that's my favorite kind of cultural experience in books and movies and TV shows. I mean, we just talked about going into the world of Killing Eve, which is, you know, that that's like why it's appealing. But I guess that's like it's that it's all about tone, right? Sure. And also like what what like how you accept if you accept someone's behavior or or not or whatever. Right. But I mean it, it I don't know. Like I, I just didn't I don't 
I'm not like excusing Bob Fosse. Like as I was watching, I was like, oh my God, this guy is like sick philanderer. Like that's horrible. But I don't know. There's so many characters on television. I guess because he's based on a real person, it's like choose, choosing to yeah. dive into his life like over someone else's is like what's offensive. Or? So I'll tell you why I loved it. Okay. So let's just, I mean, like I, I thought it really got at how when you're making something, whether you're editing a blog post or writing a piece or making a podcast or putting on cabaret or directing something or any kind of creative act, you you look at the final product and you look at the way it's received and whether or not it was a hit or whether or not it was beloved. But ultimately, for the people who make it, weirdly, all of the emotion typically is tied up in these like little details yeah. and these little acts of process that can be heartbreaking or life-affirming or everything in between. And there are these little moments in the first couple of episodes where Gwen and Bob are essentially changing the direction of one muscle in a dancer or moving the perception of like the point of view of a camera so that it like it edges off of it has a different frame or something yeah. like that or deciding there are too many people in the background or deciding that like somebody's chin needs to slouch instead of go up or something and that's what makes those things amazing right and that to me is such like i've never seen that before on television like like a show about all the little ch- details that make art art is 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 amazing to me and it's so hard to make to tell a story about a piece of art because if it's fictional, you have to somehow find that thing you do and make a song that like you can convince people is popular or right. something. And if it's nonfiction, if, it, if it's about something that really happened, you are up against the judgment of history as to like whether or not you're accurately depicting what happened. Right. And so it's a really difficult thing to do. But I just thought that these the creators of the show and especially Rockwell and Williams are both able to depict the pathos, the problems, and also the passions of these people. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And also, um, this is an episode too, but they wear incredible knitwear. I just was so (laughs) fucking overwhelmed. I was like, I need both of their sweaters right now. Yeah, talk Uh, about like globe hopping. I mean, like the the Munich and the- Mallorca. Mallorca. Beautiful. Um, And uh, like Long Island and New York City. And also like- this is a New York City or version of New York City that, that I feel I w- like was lived really, really built up to me in my head by my parents. So like my mom is from Queens. She's obsessed with Fosse. She loves these musicals. You know, like they just, I, I know that this was a time in, in New York that like was formative for my, my mom, you know? And, and so like, I know that like, it's just so interesting to view this like lifestyle and like it, and to see it represented on screen is and even with its problems. I was kind of I I feel really similar. I was captivated. Their apartment was the um. I mean, they're not like recreations. They built the set. Yeah, I think they shot at Silver Cup in Long Island City. But the apartment that they live in together, like the for the most that you see a lot in episode one, is so obviously Central Park West to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm from as an, speaking as a person who can identify where an apartment <laughs> in New York is based on the light coming into a window. Yes. <laughs> As that person, see Jam Session for more. Yeah. Um, Don't, you can brag. Juliet saw a picture of Chloe Sevigny's apartment and based on the light coming into the window was able to identify what avenue she lived on. Sixth Avenue in the 20s, I could tell. And one of my proudest accomplishments, probably of all time. And similarly, as I was watching this show and I see them moving about their apartment, I'm obsessed with New York real estate. I just loved the apartment and I was like, I love the detail they put into how the light comes streaming into their window on their on their top floor on Central Park West. So I was like this the attention to detail and then also like all of these 
lush fabrics that yeah. they obviously recreated a lot of browns, very much of the era, of like different textures of, of animal print. It was so dramatic. And again, like you don't see that on TV very often. It, it felt they were honoring the subjects, Fosse and Verdon, with the level of craft they would have put into like their own TV show. Yeah. And, and I, I thought that was really cool. And I, I mean, I... I love musical theater. I love Broadway. I love plays. I I'm so I, I don't have any connection to that world at all. So I'm so and I'm so fascinated by it. And again, like growing up in the city, like you just it's such a big part of life, like yeah. Broadway. Yeah. So I, I thought that was really cool. And I, I just thought it was like I said, like so so immersive. I, I was really like fascinated. And then so in is the Damn Yankees scene in episode one or is that in episode two? Uh, Damn Yankees is episode two. So Sweet Cherry and so right, Cabaret is right. episode one. So so I went back and I watched some of like the original scenes that they were um, talking mm-hmm. about, and the painstaking work that went into recreating the originals is like really really amazing. I went back and like YouTube that stuff. I recommend doing that if you if you haven't already. Yeah, I mean it obviously comes from a place of like incredible reverence for yeah. the history of Broadway and the history of musical theater from Tommy and Steven and I think that you could have done I mean obviously all that jazz which is a movie that Bob Fosse directed that's essentially like a memoir uh about his the own his own life and the end of his own life in some ways. Uh, and is is an incredible masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, that looms large over this show, but I felt like the, they ingeniously kind of just avoid some of the more overt stylistic influence of it. Like, I, I know that apparently, like, that changes a little bit, but I really felt like this had, like, kind of like a New York energy that is uncommon for television yeah. these days that felt more like like an early Martin Scorsese movie yes. in some ways. And it had this kind of like bursting or into like rooms. like Dog Day Afternoon or something. Yeah, and it, I think that that's, like Tommy talked about that that was like a conscious decision to feel freaking and Lumet and like have that kind of New York energy in the show. Um, you know, And it's interesting too. It's like, I think that I, when I was watching how obviously the show's arc is how when they meet, Gwen Verdon is sort of the toast of the town and Bob Fosse is this uh, kind of, Nobody quite gets his stuff yet, mm-hmm. and they over time, you know, he he eclipses her. She, her work that goes into a lot of his work starts to get erased a little bit, and you know, I find that to be obviously a tragic story, but it's not. It's a complicated story, I and agree I'm, with you. I'm, I'm very curious to see how it plays out over the next few episodes. I also think that like part of maybe why people there was like some of the reaction there was is that like this is a show that cares about ideas, and so I. Th- and that comes through in how they portray the, the characters. It comes through in how they've made the show. Mm-hmm. And so I think that sort of like to care so much about the ideas, then you also have to like care about the idea of Bob Fosse yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But I'm relieved to be watching a show and even having a conversation that is about like ideas and how you cast them and not necessarily just about like if something is good or bad or if like, you know, something that's less difficult to discuss or like grapple with. Like, I think it yeah. is cool to even be having these conversations and like so excited. There's a television show that wants to like dig into it. Yeah. And, like, it's not just like who killed who. Yeah. yeah right. And, and like that, again, I think that's like just like a different kind of show. Like this is a, this is a, about craft and like things that you make and the process of all of it. And, and that's where a lot of, you know, a lot of assholes thrive. And, that, and that's, that's true. Like yeah. that's, but that's also like part of the conversation. Like, do we just not talk about it ever? I don't know. I, I mean, don't know. It's, it is complicated, but you know, it's a show we both really enjoyed and I'm legit excited to listen to this interview. Yeah. Now. So let's get into it. You, uh, we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll have my conversation with Tommy Kale and Stephen Levinson, uh, two of the people behind Fosse Verdon. Juliet, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a dream. <laughs> 
Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Dogman from the director of Gamora. A watch fave comes Dogman, a sly crime thriller that won the Best Actor Award at the 2018 Cannes Film Festival. It was also Italy's official submission to the Oscars. The Guardian called Dogman a movie with incomparable bite and strength. Dogman opens Friday, April 12th in New York and Los Angeles. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the big homies at ADT. What does real protection mean? It means you can get all the latest innovation in smart home security from ADT combined with 24-7 monitoring from the most trusted name in home security. You'll get a team of professionals designing and installing a secure smart home just for you. You'll get 18,000 employees safeguarding you with connection to first responders. You'll get the nation's number one smart home security provider. You can get a secure smart home with everything from video doorbells, indoor and outdoor cameras, smart locks and lights controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice. You can get professionally monitored carbon monoxide and smoke detectors. You can get a system custom designed to fit your home. Get safety on the go in the car or when the kids are at school with the ADT Go app with an SOS button. Learn more at ADT.com slash podcasts. I'm speaking with Stephen Levinson and Tommy Kale, the two of the minds behind Fosse Verdon, which is my favorite thing I've seen this year. You guys have two weeks until Game of Thrones comes back to to, to own that crown for yeah, you. We much. better hold on to it. We better <laughs> we better enjoy this, Stephen. Uh, yes, exactly. Stephen, Tommy, I guess Tommy, I'll start with you. If you guys could just tell me how you got involved in this project, we'll get the easy stuff out of the way first. Absolutely. Uh, Lynn Manuel and I were backstage at the Richard Rogers in June of 2016, and Lynn got an email from his friend Sam Wasson, who wrote the book. Uh, Fossey. And it was a book that we had all loved when it came out three years prior. And Lynn and I just started talking about it. He said, you know, FX has optioned my friend's book. And, you know, Lynn like had it up in his room. I mean, like it was a book we talked about all the time. And he said, what if we kind of put this together? And I had just uh, done some stuff for 20th century. And so I was in the process of of figuring out what else I wanted to do with him. And, and we thought, why don't we bring it there? And they thought the idea was... Uh, was good enough for them to say, all right, keep going. What else you got? And around the same time, uh, you know, you know, June, July of that year, I thought that Sam Rockwell and Bob Fosse felt like a pretty good way for me to spend the next two years of my life. <laughs> so um, I, I was buddies with Sam and I, in a very random way, bumped into him at a hotel in London, like in the lobby, like, like a month after that. And I said, will you have breakfast with me? And he said yes. And the next day we sat down, and before we ordered eggs, I said Bob Faw, and he said yes, I'll do it. So oh, man. that kind of kickstarted that part. And then I met Stephen a couple months later, and, and I can pass it off to him to tell we we were at a, a screening of La La Land because what else do you imagine people that work in the musical theater do <laughs> with their free time? And Stephen and I finally we finally met. We had been sort of circling each other, lots of friends in common, and we started talking and went out to sushi one day, and, and it just sort of kicked off from there. And then Stephen, you can relay it from there. Yeah, after the um, our momentous meeting at La La Land, <laughs> um, we uh, we started talking about the book together and our shared love of the work that Bob Fosse created. And for a moment there, it seemed like we were going to be trying to develop this show called Fosse, based on the book of the same name. And what ended up happening was we met Nicole Fosse, who was the only daughter of Bob and Gwen Verdon. And we felt like it was crucial if we were going to go forward with this to have her support and to have her blessing to tell this story. And 
I think what we didn't realize is that we would be getting such an incredible creative partner on this project. And, and, you know, she was incredibly open with us and, and incredibly supportive of this. And she invited uh, the two of us to come up to Vermont to spend the night. And um, she had all of these archival materials, you know, old family things that she wanted to show us and kind of talk to us about her her parents and, and, and kind of led us into that story. And, you know, as we sat there and we listened to her talk to us about her dad, it started to become more and more clear how crucial Gwen Verdon was to this story in a way that we really didn't quite know. I mean, we knew that she was sort of his quote-unquote muse, uh, but that term, I think, hides more than it reveals in a lot of ways. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, as we were talking to Nicole, it was so clear that she was his creative partner and that he really couldn't have done the things he did without her. And 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 we realized that that, story between them, this love story, tortured love story, uh, spanning all of these decades was actually a way of telling the story of Bob Fosse that was not just another narrative about the tortured genius who, you know, destroys himself and those around him, but creates this incredible art. It was actually a new way of, of telling the story of, of how art gets made in a, in a way that's hopefully more honest to what actually happened. Yeah, you know, I was trying to explain to somebody earlier today about what I love so much about the show, and it, it for me, it really comes down to the way that you guys are working with both big ideas and themes and girding it with, like, these incredibly fine details, and that essentially is what dance is, in a weird way. Like, that's, like, you're making these grand romantic physical gestures, but every single thing is, like, which way a muscle is pointing or which way a hand gestures. And I thought that was just an incredible way to tell this story between these two people. Well, thank you, first of all. And as I've said many times, you know, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Yeah. So, you know, when, when Stephen and his, his group of writers give us a blueprint like this, my job is to try to realize and, and actualize uh, this structure. And the foundation was so strong, obviously, in Sam and Michelle, we have like, you know, like two Olympic champions who, who have decided to join us, uh, you know, in this marathon. And then for us, it was about trying to really be conscious of the fact that we're not making a documentary, but we want everything, every scene, every moment to have truth and honesty and authenticity, both in how we're recreating dance and in how we're creating moments that are either inspired by things that really happened or uh, a story that we heard or something that Watson wrote in his book or something Nicole told us or something that we learned about in other research and how do we represent that so it's as flesh and blood as it can be and not just um, not just the story of you know these you know, these guys that came down from the mountain, but people that were living in the world that were struggling, that had serious demons and serious battles, uh, both internally and externally. And, and how could we, how could we create an environment where the specificity of the filmmaking uh, that he was doing or the, the theater making that they were doing felt intensely honest so that it can transcend and then be relevant to everybody. These are about two people that cared about their jobs. That's really what this is. Yeah. And so we, we tried to approach it scene like that. Steven, I think uh, Gwen has a line, I think it's in the first episode, where she says, I know how to speak Bob, it's my native tongue. How did you <laughs> learn how to speak Bob and Gwen? I mean, because obviously these are two figures that I'm sure loom large over your life in di differing ways anyway, and there's always going to be, like, I'm sure, like, a degree of, like, trepidation about putting words in the mouth of real people and, and, and uh, 
but more like people that obviously a lot of other people feel an attachment to or an understanding of. How did you learn to to write in their voices? Oh my God, it was it was very daunting. I mean, there's definitely when you do this sort of thing, there's a long process before you ever have to sit down and actually start writing the words that the people say. And that's kind of the, that deludes you into thinking it's easy as you start kind of pitching the big ideas and, you know, this is the overarching story. But then when you sit down and actually have to, you know, say what they say, it's definitely, that, that is when it really hit me. And with Bob, I watched a lot of videos of him and kept some videos just like up all the time that I would listen to before writing anything. And he had such a specific cadence which Sam captures brilliantly, but he just, he had this incredible kind of just way of, of like there was a lazy way of speaking that he had and kind of a mumbly sort of thing. And it really like, it sounds so, so trivial, but that cigarette in his mouth, which I mean, according to everyone that knew him, it just was never not there. Yeah. And according to Nicole, it was, um, he would have often like three cigarettes burning at the same time in a room. <laughs> so he would have the cigarette that he was smoking on the couch and then the cigarette on top of the television. So when he went to change the channel, he could have a cigarette there. <laughs> and I actually, I bought a pack of cigarettes, uh, from my office and just kind of put a cigarette in my mouth as I was starting to write this show. And I found like that actually was my way in with Bob. And it's the greatest when, thing I've ever heard. I'm sorry. That's know, amazing. That the, it's, the most, it's the most adorable image that I could ever picture. <laughs> I like could not do it without that. Um, and with uh, with Gwen, you know, Gwen is a is a much less famous person uh, now, and there's a lot less to see of her. And um, and so so there are some videos, and and I I looked at a lot of those, and then the thing that really unlocked that character. For me, and I think for all of us, and certainly Michelle, was something that Nicole told us about her mom, which is she used the word fabulous. She was a fabulous. And uh, she lived her life as if she was starring in a play of her life. Mm -hmm. And so she was always a little bit playing the role of Gwen Verdon. So even when she was hailing a taxi, there was something dramatic and choreographed about it. The movement was just so. And that really unlocked the character for me. This idea that this was a person who never wanted her feet to touch the ground. And what that, of course, you know, is meant to protect her from is a terrible well of trauma and pain and suffering. But she escapes that by by never acknowledging negative things. Yeah, there are all these great moments with Michelle where right before she's walking into a public, a, a, a meeting with other people, she almost has like an offstage moment in the in like these little scenes where it's in an elevator or like as one person leaves and another person is approaching her she has like a reset and it almost feels like she's getting into character exactly tommy captured all of these moments in the series of gwen on the threshold yeah of various places and it's exactly what you say and it's such a brilliant motif of this idea of her preparing the face she's going to wear for the world well, and that's something that came obviously out of deep conversations with with Stephen and you know and our other producers. And then when I started talking to Michelle, this idea of the public and the private, the you know the the fantasy and the reality, who we are and who we want to become as you step onto stage, as you step into a room, if you're in the kitchen and Bob's coming in from the other room, you know there was a story we heard that at the very end of their lives when they were working on a revival of Sweet Charity in 1986, 87. 
Bob was about to come to rehearsal. And this was, you know, this, you know, 40 years, um, excuse me, 30 years after they'd been together. And the other dancers talked about how when Gwen knew that Bob was coming in, she just like completely transformed and judged and like made sure like this is someone that she had shared every experience of her life with, but the thought of him walking in and her not being full Gwen yeah. was, it was impossible to, you know, even that deep into it. And so that was a real Rosetta stone for us. And so we, we tried to implement that just in these, these little ways. And, and no one does that better than Michelle taking a, a big idea and making it just feel human and subtle. Oh, that's so cool. Like, so Tommy, I wanted to ask you, like you've, you, you guys are making this show and obviously all that jazz kind of looms large over it in terms of, you know, Bob Fosse has made, nominally has made a movie about his life before. But the thing that I think is mind-blowing about Fosse Verdon is if you go into this thinking, oh, it's going to be like all that jazz, or even if it's going to be like some of the more Fellini-ish, you know, life is, it, life is a sort of dream moments that, that all that jazz captures. Honestly, man, it feels more like Goodfellas to me. Like there's a certain like energy to these moments. Like I, I almost feel like it has more of a like real like adrenalized New York filmmaking that I haven't seen on television maybe ever. Like, I don't know. But like, can you tell me a little bit about what? Now we got to make the sauce. I'm <laughs> making the sauce in the helicopter. That's right. Um, well, well, look, I, you know, I, I spoke, um, first of all, that's very nice of you to say. And um, I, I thought a lot about and talked a lot about with our uh, cinematographer, Tim Ives, and our production designer, Alice Gerlando, Melissa Toth, our costume designer. A lot of those early 70s Sidney Lumet movies, you know, thinking about other films of that era, you know, the, the quality of those films, like the conversation, um, you know, so some of that Coppola stuff, French Connection, you know, the Friedkin feel to it. Yeah. And obviously all those things are happening right around Mean Streets and, and all of those those films. So there was, there was something about, you know, in investigating this particular story one chapter at a time. And then all of a sudden, Stephen and I were talking and we realized that this isn't actually chapters. This is not eight chapters of a novel. It's eight short stories that are all cohesive, hopefully, and are of a piece, but they can have their own visual language and visual style. And hopefully we're setting things up in episode one that come back, but also can continue to surprise you in two and three. And as you get deeper into the series, that the grammar is set up but we can continue to to move from that. And we always knew that the trunk of the show in terms of the chronology was going to be in the 1970s, but the branches and the roots go back and go out from there. And so it gives us a place to return to, but I don't think going womb to tomb was that interesting to either of us. It feels like you could never get your arms around the whole thing. And even though the canvas was big because it's, you know, eight episodes is about seven hours of stuff. That's a big, that's a big movie to make, but we thought about it in that way that, you know, you can almost pair a couple of the episodes, one and two, three and four, five is kind of its own thing, six and seven, and then eight is kind of its own thing. So each of them was kind of like the front half of a movie and the back half of a movie. But again, thinking about them as uh, as liberated from any one particular form, but trying to capture energy and feeling is something that we looked at a lot of those movies from the 70s. And Sam is a complete cinephile. I, I, my great hope for this series is that obviously Sam gets carried around the world on people's shoulders, <laughs> but also that he, you know, he hosts uh, a, a movie film series about the 1970s for the rest of his life. Like he just does because an AMC show. Scene, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or just like goes to like, you know, some, you know, like the Arclight theater, you know, like on Tuesdays. Um, but you know, we're, we're so informed by those films and obviously stand on the shoulders of them. Steven, so did you write this, straight or did you assemble it essentially in the writing as this kind of fractured chronology and all these little sort of 
th- these sort of anecdotes that thread together to to sort of speak to larger themes in these two people's lives? Or how how did you sort of assemble the narrative? Well, we definitely, you know, when we started talking, uh, we, we were searching for what that structure would be and searching for how to break these lives up into eight pieces and break all of the work that they made together into eight pieces and, and figure out what, what needed to be there and, and what didn't. And also like what would structure it, what the structuring principle of it would be, because it's such, you know, like all lives, they were sprawling and, um, you know, formless and we had to put some kind of form on top of it. And so really the first thing that happened was that first episode. And, we knew that we wanted to start them in the seventies because it's the most vital period for both of them. It's when they did their work that we most remember them for having done. And it's also the period where their relationship was, was kind of the most complicated and strange. And it's the moment really when, when our show begins, it's the moment when Bob finally begins to eclipse Gwen Mm -hmm which is such a strange thing that we realized as we were making the story is that, you know, Fosse is the name that we all know now, but when they were together for most of their relationship, she was the star and he was, uh, you know, the workaday choreographer and director who some people knew in the industry, of course, but he wasn't a national celebrity like she was. And so this was the moment where all of that kind of switched and her career went into decline and, and his began to rise. And then I think, you know, basically, as we assemble the writer's room and Joel Field, who is uh, another executive producer on the show um, and writer, joined the team, we we started to sketch out what we thought the whole series could look like. And, you know, we wanted to focus always on what was most emotional. What, what What were the things that were going to carry us through this relationship. And, and really, I guess that's the, the structure of it is following this relationship and this love affair. And so, you know, we think of the first episode as kind of the end. It's when their marriage ends for the first time. And then the second episode, we go back to the beginning. And each of the episodes kind of is a different take on, you know, where they are in their relationships in some ways. And the other thing we really wanted to do, as Tommy said, this, this sort of short story idea we wanted to look at the work that they were creating at the time and figure out if we could borrow the language of those projects in the making of these, of these episodes. So the first episode has to me a very cabaret feel. It's filled with like montages and it's got a certain darkness to it. And the second episode is all about damn Yankees and this deal with the devil and that episode is, is brighter and sort of golden age of Broadway looking. And, and we go on like that. And, and, and that became a cool idea for structuring the, sh- the show as well. I know that you guys have both talked previously in other interviews about how the emergence of the, the Me Too movement was pretty clarifying as uh in terms of how it influenced the show itself. Because you were talking about, like, does there need to be another great man Sort of story, you know, another another tortured artist, great man story. Yeah, that's kind of fascinating. It was would this be so? This would be a different show, you think, if this came out in say 2013? I don't know. I, I mean, look, the reality is when we started to think about this project, and that book came out in 2013, so sure. the book is written, you yeah. know, at, at at a particular moment in time, and 
Stephen and I went to New England to visit Nicole in August of 2017. So it was about a month before everything started to be revealed. All of these, uh, you know, all of these truths started to finally come to light. And our feeling was we had this opportunity in this story to examine a very simple question. Why do we know his name and we don't know hers? And from that, we realized that we had to go straight into all of the things that we knew to be true. And what was true is there was behavior rampant uh, in Bob's life that was completely inappropriate and took advantage of his position and his power. And it, it, and however it was perceived at the time was was not something that now we wanted to go back and use as, oh, well, that was back then. Like, that was back then is not a justifiable answer. It's, people weren't talking about things they should have been talking about. And here we are. And he had a, an, a relationship with Gwen that was so complex and nuanced because she was with him for so much of that. So we knew that the two of them had to be in the title. We knew we had to try to investigate the story as honestly as possible. And we also knew that there was an opportunity to to continue a conversation. We have to talk about the things that uh, were happening in the dark. And so our feeling is if the lights are on, let's talk about what we're seeing. Yeah, there was definitely this moment, I remember where, uh, and we talked about this, where we're, where we're sort of like, as we were learning more about Bob Fosse and, and digging deeper, we kept stumbling on things that were increasingly uncomfortable. And the way he presents his behavior and all that jazz is kind of caddish and he's a playboy and that is his, his perspective on his behavior. Um, but as we began learning more, there was, there was a moment where it was sort of like, how can we tell this story and, and, and sand down the edges of this guy? Like, how are we going to, how are we going to make people care about this person? And then I think as Tommy said, when, when all of those things started coming out, it was very clarifying because it was sort of like, rather than trying to figure out, how to make this person palatable. It was really, actually, we have to show the true spectrum of his behavior. And that's actually the point. It's, it's not to figure out how to tell this story. It's, it's, it's that, that's precisely the story that needs to be told. Yeah, I mean, I think it, that's the, the beauty of the show is that it looks at people as very, very complicated. And, you know, you can... Bob Fosse did do a lot of reprehensible things. And I don't think that just because he's on camera or character of his, like, his character is on camera, it's not necessarily lionizing him. And I think that's, like, it's a very adult, mm -hmm. nuanced, intelligent way of looking at people who are inexorably drawn to each other. And that that kind of obsession is so, it goes so hand-in-hand hand with creation in a weird way. And that's what, I mean, you guys have both talked about this. That's what this show seems to be about, ultimately, is about how ugly and strange and wonderful artistic creation can be. Yes, and, and part of the the dichotomy that existed for me and something I was really interested in exploring is that I have a very simple mandate in the way that I work, which is I want to try to make high quality things with harmony. Like I just, I don't understand or know how to operate in that cauldron crucible of pain and pressure and raised voices and raised pitches to think that that's how you have to make something good. I'm not saying that excellent things haven't been made that way. I'm just saying, I don't know how to do that. So I thought that there was, there was an opportunity to tell a story about someone who, as I like to think of, Bob was a, a, like a bad peacetime general. Yeah. So he always had to create a battle. Yeah. He just he didn't know how to do something uh, unless there was opposition. Um, he used that as fuel, and I, I felt like we had a we had a chance in the making of the show to try to create an environment where 
we could have really nuanced, open conversations about everything to go and make a show that had some really deeply dark and gnarly parts that had to be examined. And, you know, we made the show over six months. I mean, we shot for 85 or 86 days. And making television and film is uh, is a lot of the same tools that you have in the theater, and it's a lot of very different things, including you have to be smart at 6 a.m., which you'd never have to do in the theater. <laughs> um, people are looking at you and saying, where should this go? And you're like, it's 6 a.m., I don't know. I'm just, I'm just barely trying to wake up. Um, but I also think that there was... What is this, high school? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, exactly. I, know. I was like, I work from this hour. I'm, I was like, 10 a.m. to midnight, I'm great. But then after that, I'm, I'm a kind of adult. Um, you know, so I, I feel like... You know, I have a theory, and, and this is really only mine, and I figured I'd try it out here because, you know, for your 600 million listeners, which is that I feel like Bob Fosse made all that jazz as a, as a cautionary tale. And, and then it was celebrated, and he was lionized and made into a hero. So the behavior in that, which was so much of it was taken directly from his life, including, you know, making his former girlfriend, Anne Ranking, auditioned to play the parts of her. You know, I mean, like, just that kind of, like, meta-craziness. But I feel like the world looked at this behavior and said, oh, but it's Bob, it's okay. Yeah. Oh, but look what he's made. And, like, that was very indicative of that particular moment in time. And, and I think about it, like, you know, we we are not trying to make that film. That film already exists. That film is something that we have to acknowledge. I was certainly not going to be like, I've never seen it. You know, it's like, no, like I've seen it 10 times, right. but I also didn't grow up on it. I didn't grow up, you know, and that wasn't part of my theatrical diet. Cause I didn't start doing this till so late. I didn't even know who Bob Fosse was until my twenties, but I feel like we had to acknowledge that. And then we had to try to move in the direction that we could, which is we could only tell the story the way that we knew how. But what's great about all that jazz, I will say, yeah, just the thing that, you know, that, that was helpful was knowing that we got to see how Bob wanted his story told, which is a, an incredible luxury as a storyteller. You actually get to see like how your subject wanted to be seen. And, and in doing that and getting to look at that, you can see all of the things he left out or the things he skipped over or sort of, you know, nodded to, but didn't get into. And, and that gives us permission to say, well, his version of his story is already slanted, so we can create a different slanted version of his story and tell tell our version of that story just as he told his version. So it was kind of an amazing gift, I think, to have that movie and, and know how Bob saw himself. Yeah, absolutely. I guess my last question would be, I was curious whether or not, with the, you know, the years that you two have both spent working in the theater, are there any not Easter eggs, but inside jokes that you included in the show that like only people who have worked with you or have been in rehearsal studios or on stage or off stage with you guys would, would kind of notice that even though it's, it's, it's this historical document that you're sort of portraying, but did you guys throw some inside jokes in there? Now I'm like, I'm why didn't we do that? <laughs> I was just thinking about Stephen uh, sitting with an unlit cigarette at his computer. I'm sorry, what you're saying? Stephen, there's probably a couple of things. Stephen, are there any for you? You know what? There are things that I think only people that do theater will get that were important for us, like in terms of the authenticity, but I, none that are personal, you know? Okay. But like I said, yeah. I wish I had done that now. <laughs> um, you know, there, the epigraph of Sam Watson's book is how much time do I have left? Which is a question that every director and choreographer asks 15 times a day when you're in rehearsal, because you're always, you're always chasing the day. And so those moments you know, when Bob steps up to a stage manager and rehearsal or turns to his AD and you realize that 
the problem in front of you might take two days and you realize the only thing you might have in front of you that could help you is like a 10 minute break. So there's a lot of those moments where like, let's just take a 10 here, which basically means like, I don't know how to fix this. Right. <laughs> um, and I think that anyone who's ever tried to make something in the theater, there's definitely like, are we close to a break? We're 30 minutes away. Let's just take it now. Let's just take it now. Yeah. It means I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I was kind of, I mean, like, means I need a if you guys were going back and looking, cause I imagine when he was making his, when he was making cabaret, and all that jazz and, and his, his films in the in the seventies, some of the overages and and diva movies he must have pulled. Uh, on, you could not do anymore. Where you're just like, I've decided oh that we God. need a different gorilla suit. So go, somebody has to fly to New York to get it. Yeah, it, yeah. So I mean, Glenn. Lenny over Lenny, I think shot an extra two or three months uh, <laughs> than it was scheduled for. Like, yeah. I, I mean, you just can't imagine that. The, the Bye Bye Life number, which he shot, shot at, um, at SUNY Purchase, and we ended up doing a little bit of, of our show up there also, which felt like another. There were lots of layers in our show. Um, that was one of them. He took 15 days to shoot that number. 15 days. <laughs> our moment that touches on that, I think we had like four hours and like had to be out by 8 p.m. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so, yeah. so there's something about like, you know, the, the call to the studio or like taking the phone off the hook. Yes. Uh, you know, it's certainly not something we could do. I did find there was something um, that I really enjoyed. You know, I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. Like I, like I'm pretty like my rituals are very like weird and routine. And like, I, I always wear the same thing and I, you know, eat at the same time. And I had a, a shirt made for me um, that said more smoke, please, which is what Bob wore on, on the set. Uh, and of course, like as soon as the atmosphere came out and the fake cigarettes, I actually had to wear like a mask. Of course. Like, that's how like, Bob is like so hardcore. He's got like 73 cigarettes. He doesn't remember they're even in his mouth. And I'm like, can someone bring me a little thing? I, I feel like I'm getting very, <laughs> so I was, I was proud of that distinction, but it was also like all of the pictures of me on set. I look like I'm just like battling a flu, but yeah. I promise it was just the atmosphere. Bob would have been a terrible television director. I think it's safe to say. Yeah, I think yeah. I think just the the, the crippling second all amount like about a second all in, in in play would have probably oh, gotten yeah. away. Yeah. Well, you guys made an incredible incredible show. I'm so happy for people to finally get to see it. And thank you so much for calling in to watch. It was I really appreciate it. If you guys are ever out in LA, definitely come by and we'll we'll continue the chat. Oh, thank really you appreciate so it. much. Thank, thank you for making the time. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by ADT. With ADT Real Protection, you can get all of the latest innovation in smart home security from ADT, combined with 24-7 monitoring from the most trusted name in home security. Get the nation's number one smart home security provider and a system custom designed to fit your home. And get the ADT Go app with an SOS button for safety on the go. Learn more at ADT.com slash podcasts.